Well, we will be, we're, we're embarking on a new project finally after uh, two and a half years in Daniel. Uh, I'm starting a series in 1 Peter and 2 Peter. Uh, and we're taking off like a flock of tortoises. We're going to do the, the first two verses of 1 Peter today. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. What do you do when you face challenges on account of your faith in Christ? How do you feel when a friend is kind to you personally, but complains or makes fun of Christians in general? What goes through your mind when a simple, neutrally worded statement of God's righteous standard is misinterpreted as a vicious slander? First Peter is a book all about answering these kinds of questions. For at the end of his letter, Peter writes, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it, writing to those who, uh, who are being slandered and facing ostracism to their faith. Peter's final answer is, stand firm in the true grace of God, no matter what happens, no matter how you're opposed. Well, this advice to stand firm is, is good advice, but we all know sometimes it feels like just telling a depressed person to cheer up or telling an amputee to do cartwheels. You just don't have it in you all the time. But that's the point. Peter doesn't just tell you stand firm against difficulty. You can't do it on your own. You need strength that comes from outside. That's why Peter says stand firm in the true grace of God. So throughout his letter, Peter is going to tell you about the grace of God that gives that strength. But how does he begin? He begins with a few simple statements of identity. For God gives you a new identity, and in this identity, you are able to persevere. And so tonight, we're going to look at three particular identities that, that Peter draws on. First, Peter's identity as an apostle. Second, his recipient's identity as foreigners to the world. And third, his recipient's identity as citizens of God. And so first we look at Peter's identity as an apostle. Now, you're familiar with the concept of messengers. In the first Star Wars movie, the droid R2-D2 serves as a messenger at the beginning of the film. He brings plans for the Death Star and a plea for help to Obi-Wan Kenobi. Uh, the New York City General Post Office has a phrase inscribed on it, neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. 
describing the work of a postal courier. And this is actually a motto that has its origins millennia ago, as Herodotus reported about the courier system of the ancient Persian Empire. Well, that's who Peter is. Peter is an apostle. And it's a Greek word that is used in the Bible to refer to a messenger. But not just any messenger, a particular kind of messenger. For this messenger is appointed by Jesus Christ himself. And this claim to apostleship involves two things. There's authority and message. And so first, let's consider Peter's apostolic authority. For along with the other apostles, Peter was an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ. And an apostle received their authority by commission from Jesus himself. Jesus entrusted Peter and the other apostles with authority to bear authentic and perfect testimony to Jesus' own life, message, and significance. And so by saying he's an apostle, Peter is saying that he has authority, specifically that to receive Peter's words is to receive Christ's words. And second, we have Peter's message. In John chapter 14, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit to his apostles so that they would be able to perfectly remember him and all that they needed to pass along to God's people. And so Peter's letter represents Jesus and all he did and taught perfectly. Yet the message is not only for the messenger's benefit, for it needs an audience. And so while Peter had occasion to send this letter to certain people, these elect exiles of the dispersion, specifically in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, yet we know that all of God's words are for everybody who belongs to God. And so this letter is not only God's word for first century Christians in northern Asia Minor, but it is God's word for 21st century Christians in Corvallis and all over the world. And so this authority and message, by the way, are why we need to be so careful with words like apostle or apostolic. Now, on occasion, you hear somebody from a Reformed tradition uh, uh, speak of, of an apostolic ministry. And, and in these cases, it normally means that our gospel proclamation, the things that we teach, conforms to the teaching of the apostles. As Paul expresses in Ephesians 2.20, that the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets writing in Scripture. Now, on some other occasions, you hear of somebody referring to having an apostolic ministry, meaning they're dedicated to seeking the Lord's will for their congregation and rallying the people to that vision. And that's really an unfortunate use of that word apostolic, because we read in Acts 1 that what sets apart an apostle is that they were eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry, death, and resurrection, and that they were commissioned to do what? to bear witness to his resurrection. Now, there's nobody living today who's an eyewitness to Jesus. And the apostles didn't understand their ministry in terms of setting an agenda for a congregation other than the Lord's own teaching. 
Now, even if somebody describes their ministry as apostolic, it may still be that they are otherwise leading their church in a God-honoring way. But it's not a helpful use of the word, and it can lead to abuses. But there are also those who use the word to claim that they have a new revelation from God. Yet as Hebrews 1 makes clear, God has spoken for the final time until the end of the age by his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so God leads us through wisdom, conscience, and the prompting of the Spirit in accordance with Scripture. But there's no new message from God for the church from any so-called apostle. And so anybody who claims to have a revelation like this from God is, in fact, a false apostle. But back to Peter and his apostleship. This, this is a letter written by Peter, Jesus' apostle. And as such, this message is an authoritative and perfect account of Jesus' own gospel message. And it's written for his people for all time and perfectly suited to all that we need to glorify him. So this is why Peter introduces himself as an apostle to inform you that everything that he's written here is faithful and true. And so now that we've looked at Peter's identity as an apostle, we look at the identity of his recipients. Peter describes these, his recipients as elect exiles of the dispersion. But when Peter does this, he's applying covenantal identity markers to his readers. For these are ways that God's people have always been identified throughout all the history of God's people. And he's describing them in vertical and horizontal dimensions, meaning their relationship, as we say, vertically to God, and their relationship horizontally to the world. Now, elect describes their relationship to God, and we're going to look at that aspect of, of, of these believers' identity in a few minutes, but, but what we're going to turn to first is the relationship to the world. And so we're going to consider what we can glean about their history, and then what it means that they have this status in the world as exiles of the dispersion. So a little history. Well, the fact is, we don't actually know very much about these recipients, to tell you the truth. We don't know, for example, how they came to hear the gospel. Um, Peter lists the names of these several regions or colonies of the Roman Empire, and they're spread across the northern two-thirds or so of modern-day Turkey. They're actually, they seem very close to Rome and to Greece, but because of the difficulty of travel, across the Taurus Mountains on the south of Turkey, they're actually very difficult to get to. Uh, and so these are kind of backwaters of the Roman Empire in the first century. Uh, and so what we find is that apart from Galatia, we have no record uh, in Acts or any of the apostles' writings that they ever evangelized these regions themselves. And we even read, when we, when we read of Paul having a ministry in Galatia, uh, looking at the cities he did travel to, it's very likely that he's just been in the southern tip of Galatia, not in the northern part. In fact, we even read in Acts 16 that Paul was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to bring the gospel to Asia or Bithynia, two of the other places 
that Peter mentions here. So we have no record in Acts or Paul's writings that he ever went to these places. And Peter doesn't give any clues as to how he's come to know them either. Now, it's likely that at the time that Peter was writing this, that he's in Rome. And we know that the Roman Empire was colonizing these regions of northern modern-day Turkey in order to bring them more firmly under Roman control. And so it's quite plausible that Peter knew uh, or possibly converted, brought the gospel to these Christians in Rome, who then went off to go colonize this other part of the Roman Empire. But we just don't know for sure. But what does seem certain is that these believers were suffering unofficial persecution. Because the first state-sanctioned persecution of Christians wasn't beginning until around the time that Peter was martyred. And yet in this letter, he describes his recipients as tested by fire, maligned as evildoers, and suffering for doing good. So it seems that these believers suffered unofficial and social ostracization for their faith. And that brings us to their status as exiles. Now this word translated exiles is the Greek parepidimos, uh, which is probably better translated simply as foreigner. Because the word exile suggests a forced removal from a homeland, but the original Greek word is more neutral uh, in, its, in its meaning. Because it's simply a description of people who are not citizens in the place where they reside. And so when Peter describes these recipients as foreigners, they're in good company. With the exact same Greek word, we read in Hebrews 11.13 that people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah were foreigners on the earth. We see Abraham, in the Greek translation of Genesis 23, use the same word to describe himself as a foreigner when he buys a cave from the Hittites to bury his late wife, Sarah. And so the Christians of Asia Minor are living as God's people always have, as foreigners in the world. And one of the key experiences felt by foreigners all over the place and throughout history is that they may be viewed with suspicion by the natives and even accused of subverting the common good. And we can see this in recent history and even up to the present day. Uh, in the 1840s and 50s, there was these successive waves of immigration from Ireland, and uh, a, a prominent political party arose, uh, basically on the suspicion that Irish immigration was a plot by Catholics to undermine civil and religious liberty in the United States. Today, it's not hard to find all kinds of derogatory epithets hurled at immigrants here from Mexico, Central America, the Middle East, and Asia. And so the experience of foreigners is, is quite understandable in terms of ostracization and suspicion. And so Peter's recipients, as we said, were Roman colonists uh, impinging on the native uh, likely impinging on the native population and Christians on top of it. 
Justin Martyr wrote in the second century that Christians were often accused of cannibalism and conducting orgies because they celebrated the Lord's Supper at a communal meal they called the Love Feast. Peter himself, again, says that they're maligned as evildoers. And so we see what Peter is getting at when he describes his recipients as foreigners. But Peter also refers to them as the dispersion or the diaspora from the Greek word diasporos, which is a technical term that referred to Jews who had been displaced from the promised land after the exile to Babylon. And yet, not a term that's generally applied to Jewish converts to Christianity. So why is Peter using this word to describe his, his readers? Well, essentially, Peter is connecting them to the historical experience of the people of God scattered throughout the world. For after the Babylonian exile, most Jews remained away from the promised land, and yet still longing to return to the promised land someday. And Christians, God's people down to this very day, are citizens of a heavenly country far from where we make our home. So in the diaspora, God's people wrestled with how they would avoid becoming just like the people in their new culture. And so the recipients of Peter's letter may not literally be part of the Jewish diaspora, yet Peter is connecting them to the history of God's God's people scattered throughout the world, people who bear testimony by their word and by their way of life. So in short, the theme of diaspora is an important way for Peter's recipients to understand their present experience. And so you can see that Peter's recipients aren't the only ones who can be described as foreigners of the diaspora. This is an experience shared by all those who believe in Christ. We're a diaspora because there's no earthly homeland for Christians. And instead, Christ is gathering for himself people from every nation to be citizens of his heavenly nation. And there are believers just about everywhere in the world today. Yet the gospel is the same everywhere, and everyone who follows Christ also has to fight this thread of assimilation, must resist imitating their cultures, and obey Christ. And no matter where we may live, no matter uh, what it says on your passport, we are foreigners because we're citizens of that heavenly kingdom. And so Christians are often maligned or distrusted here on earth. Just as an example, one of the prevailing beliefs about our own culture in time is that the purpose of a human being is primarily to express itself as an individual without restriction. Yet the gospel tells us that the purpose of a human being is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so you can see that a person just trying to express themselves would find the gospel a buzzkill at best, and an existential threat at worst. And yet, just like foreigners throughout history, we can still find points of contact with the world around us. And Peter will write in this letter of honoring rulers and neighbors. And there are good things in our society as well. And we have the opportunity to engage with our worldly neighbors where our values do overlap. And of course, just like any foreigner, there are things that we are about in this Christian nation that have appeal 
to those uh, to, to those uh, uh, neighbors to whom we're foreigners. Even immigrants to our own country have many values and customs that are uh, that are widely understood to be beautiful. Think of the exuberance of the quinceanera. Think of the way that. Uh, Muslims honor their families and still seek to care for them, even if they're here uh, in the United States at a great distance. If you've, uh, have you ever seen the joy of a Jewish wedding banquet? It's really a sight to behold. So just like these things, there are things we have in the gospel that our earthly neighbors would also treasure. Things like the promise of rest in Christ. The way we restore those who do wrong with gentleness, and the unity we have, despite being all different kinds of people. But we didn't become foreigners and part of this dispersion by our own decision. And so we turn now to the question of our vertical identity with God. For if we're foreigners to the world, we're citizens to God, And if we are dispersed throughout the world, we are at home with him. And this is accomplished by God's election. As we see Peter use this word elect, not just exiles, but elect exiles. And in verse 2, we see that Peter is characterizing God's work of election by the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For God's election is what makes us citizens of heaven and what makes us God's people. And Peter describes this election using three, as we say, prepositional phrases. First, it's according to the foreknowledge of God. Second, it is by the sanctification of the Spirit. And third, it is for the purpose and result of obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so first, we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, this preposition, according to, it it translates a Greek preposition that indicates purpose. So we are elect according to the purpose of the foreknowledge of of God the Father. And, And so it's not foreknowledge in the sense that God the Father knew of our faith beforehand and therefore chose to elect us. It refers to the Father's purpose according to his own will to elect those whom he had chosen. Now, this same word for foreknowledge occurs a few other times in the New Testament, both as a noun and as a verb, you know, foreknew, God foreknew. And every time it refers to God knowing his own purpose for the future. And critically, just a few verses later in, in 1 Peter 1.20, Peter will say that Christ was foreknown by God before the foundation of the world. God planned Christ's atonement before the foundation of the world. Peter says much the same thing in Acts 2.23 when he preaches in Jerusalem that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Likewise, in Romans 8.29 and 11.2, Paul refers to God for knowing his people, but not with any reference to work, any works that they, that they would do. For Paul is saying that the Father knew in advance those whom he would save. And this knowledge of his people has covenantal implications. As Thomas Schreiner puts it, believers are elect because God the Father has set his covenantal affection upon them. 
John writes, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So God calls himself a father. He draws you into the relationship of a family. And this knowledge that you belong in his family gives strength to live as a foreigner in this world. For you might not fit very well in this world, but you fit in perfectly with God. For he's not the kind of father who forgets his children from time to time or treats his children unkindly. He even promises his people that the sun will stop rising before he stops loving his children. He's always there for you. He's ready to hear. He delights in giving you good gifts of every kind. And as Jesus taught us, especially the Holy Spirit, whom we turn to next. For Peter writes that election is by the sanctification of the Spirit. Now the ESV translates this as in the sanctification of the Spirit, but the Greek word here can also be translated as by, and it makes sense to do so because the the idea of instrumentality, the Holy Spirit being an instrument of election, uh, fits better with than than the Holy Spirit being the uh, location of election. And so the Holy Spirit is the one who puts our election into practice by sanctifying us. Now we often think of the Holy Spirit's sanctification in terms of progressively teaching us to walk with God, and we do find that in Scripture, but that's not the main focus that Peter has in mind here. For with these three phrases in verse 2, there's a flow of thought from purpose to instrument to result. And so Peter here is referring to our past sanctification, in which the Holy Spirit set us apart for God and his purposes on account of election. And so here we see most clearly how exactly election makes us foreigners in the world. For the Holy Spirit has set you apart for God, but not for this world. And election is finally for the result that we would obey Jesus and be sprinkled by his blood. Uh, It's an awkward, awkward, awkward Greek sentence to translate into English. Um, And literally translated, it would sound something like, for the obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. It doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. But but obedience, the the, the key point I'm trying to make here is this. In, In the Greek, Peter puts obedience and sprinkling of blood directly next to each other because they belong together. So the overall sense is preserved well by the ESV, but we want to think of obedience and sprinkling blood together, because when put together, they call us back to Exodus chapter 24, where God establishes his covenant with the people of Israel. And what happens? The people of Israel pledge their obedience, and Moses sprinkles the people with the blood of a sacrificial ox. And so our election, God's electing us, has the result that we obey Christ by repenting of our sins and turning to him in faith, and that he purifies us by shedding his own blood and applying it to us. For Christ is both our perfect, eternal high priest and the final sacrifice to end all sacrifices. When a sacrifice for sin is made, that sinner's liability to God's wrath is transferred to the sacrificial animal who suffers and dies instead. 
Well, Jesus is the sacrificial lamb for all the sins of those who put their trust in him. For God's wrath was poured out on him, and he suffered the wrath you deserve if you receive his sacrifice by faith. And he calls us to obedience. He calls us to walk the path of righteousness that he walked. And by his grace, you can indeed grow and walk more and more in step with him. You can see how Jesus knew he was the son of his heavenly father and how at every turn he obeyed the father against the world. His world wanted him to be a military leader. His world wanted him to sharpen ethnic division in his kingdom. His world wanted him to keep people under the thumb of rules and regulations too numerous and too heavy to follow. But that's not what he did. Instead, he died. He established a kingdom for people from all nations. He welcomed prostitutes to know him and be changed. And all that he ever did right is credited to the account of all who trust in him. So there we have it. In response to this early beginnings of persecution, Peter, the apostle, begins his letter by reminding his people of who they are as foreigners to the world, but as the elect of God. And what's the result of this election? It's grace and peace. This is a common greeting for the apostle's letter. You see it, I think, in every letter, maybe not quite all. But it's not in there for nothing. For by God's election, we are assured of his grace, no matter what the world may throw at us. We've done nothing to earn it, and the world can do nothing to take it away. Because it is God's grace freely given to those whom he has chosen. And he does it simply because he is faithful to himself, to his plans, and to what he has promised to do for you. By God's election, we have peace from him. We have that holistic, complete, full well-being that's based not on how we're doing today or what our status is today, but on God's covenant. Because our relationship with God is made right by his grace, we have a wholeness that the world can't offer. We have access to a certain unflappability in the face of adversity. And yet, of course, we know some days we lack peace. And so we have a God we can call on anytime we lack peace. As Paul tells us, do not be anxious in anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So no matter how foreign you may feel as you go through life, don't forget that you always belong with God, a God who chose you by the Holy Spirit who set you apart. This is the reliable message of Christ, who secured God's grace and peace for you by his blood. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have grace and peace from you always, not on the basis of anything in us or anything that we have done, but on account of your promise. So, Father, we pray 
that we would have confidence in your promises, that you would follow through on them, and that you would give us endurance to face whatever we must face until we see you face to face. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.